Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. I'm your host, Rafe Kelly. At Evolve Move Play, our aim is to help you cultivate a more meaningful life and a more heroic self by reconnecting deeply to movement, mindfulness, nature, and community practices. This podcast was created to bring the best and brightest minds in all of these subjects together to better understand how we can create an empowering and sustainable ecology of practices for personal growth. If you're interested in being part of this ongoing conversation, the best way you can support us and get involved is by joining our Podcast Plus membership. By joining, you will get backstage access to our live podcast airing once a month, as well as a private question and answer session with me and our guests after the show. On top of that, you'll get access to our thriving online community where you can continue these deeper discussions with people all over the world who are just as passionate and curious about these topics as you. More details about the membership as well as the link to get signed up are in the description below. And whether you can join, be sure to like, share, subscribe, and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every Monday when our episodes drop. Thanks so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the Evolve Move Play podcast. This week, my guest is Rob Gray. Rob Gray is the author of a new and really amazing book called How We Learn to Move. He's also an associate professor in applied psychology at the University of Arizona State. He's one of the leading figures, in my opinion, in understanding ecological dynamics in relationship to motor control. That's dynamical systems combined with ecological psychology. And he's been uh, running a podcast of his own called the Perception Action Podcast, which has been one of my best guides in really deeply understanding modern learning theory out there. I cannot recommend his podcast enough, and I think it's been immensely useful to me. I think if you're going to dive into his podcast, though, listening to this podcast first is going to be really helpful because we go through a lot of the language, which can be quite um, difficult as you're getting into this area and break it down and give you practical examples of it. So if you have run into ideas like the constraints-led approach or differential learning, affordances, motor degeneracy, this kind of things, and you really want to have a deep understanding of it, Rob and I really dig into it and give you practical examples and ways to think about it. So it's, a, it's an amazing exploration of those things. We also get into where potential missing pieces in something like the ecological dynamics uh, approach are and how we could think about it in other ways or, or how we could grow that. So I think this is a fascinating conversation. I really was so excited to, to be able to speak to Rob. He's honestly one of my biggest intellectual influences. No, he may not be as well known to those of you in the audience, but to me, this was an absolutely incredible opportunity to dive deeply into uh, some of the most important ideas, I think, and understanding how we can perform better as coaches and as athletes. So if you're interested in that at all, please stick around and, and watch this conversation with Rob. I even think this, the ideas around ecological psychology are actually critical to understanding the aspects of the meaning crisis that we talk about on this channel. So there's so much depth and richness in this conversation. It's really one of my favorites. So don't miss it. Enjoy my conversation with Rob Gray. Rob, welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. It's a pleasure to speak with you again. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. So you have a new book out called How We Learn to Move, which I just finished last night. It's wonderful. I highly recommend it to anybody who's interested in, uh, in training, right? If you're, if you're trying to get better as an athlete, trying to help athletes get better, I think it's a, a really amazing resource. And you know, uh, your podcast, the Perception Action Podcast has been a huge influence on me. It's been really one of the best places that I've sourced um, insight that's helped me shape my training. So thank you. Um, and in, in that 
in your book, you describe what you call a revolution in movement training. Mm-hmm. So I just want to start with getting some of these concepts more defined for people, for people who are in my audience. A lot of them will have heard me talk about some of these things, but I think you're going to be able to give a little bit more clarity. So let's start with what is the revolution that's currently happening in movement training that you describe? Yeah. So I, I deliberately chose that word to kind of be provocative, you know, sell books, yeah. but also I do think there's kind of a, a fundamental change um, along two lines that I really try to emphasize in the book is the moving away from my, the idea of repetition, right? That the way that we become skillful is learning to repeat the mm-hmm. one correct technique over and over, which is still surprisingly, even though, you know, we, once you get in kind of a people that are aligned with this view, you think it's kind of lost, but a lot of people still subscribe to that. And, and also the, uh, the revolution that away from the idea of automaticity, the idea that becoming skillful is like almost like disconnecting from the environment. So mm-hmm. if you want to become reflexive by, you know, these programs that run on their own, you don't have to think about, um, kind of getting rid of that idea and trying to uh, go to more that really skillful is about being connected to your environment, establishing relationships with it. So those are the two things, you know, there's a lot of roots to this and it's, it's, it's in a lot of different themes and areas, but I want, that's kind of what the rep might, I mean by revolution in, in the title. So just to repeat back what you said, you're saying that essentially there's a revolution in understanding in, of what being skillful means where it's not simply being able to repeat a movement pattern or to make a movement pattern automatic. So the last time we spoke, is is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one way to think about, you know, even the, the term we use skill acquisition, the idea kind of a very asymmetrical view that skill is in you Mm -hmm. all in your head and knowledge versus a more symmetrical view that skill is your relationship with the environment. Yeah. Yeah. So the last time we spoke, we, I was on your podcast. It was a wonderful conversation with Sean Mishka, Josh Peacock, and uh, Scott Sievright about applying the constraints led approach within our ecological dynamics mm-hmm. in the martial arts context. So I had um, Josh and Scott on my podcast as well. And so my, my podcast with Josh just came out this week and okay. in the comments, people are like, but first you have to teach the fundamentals, right? <laughs> right. Like yeah. if, if you, if you don't do kata, we're, we're, you know, he comes from a traditional martial arts background, specifically uh, Taekwondo, Korean martial arts and Taekwondo like karate um, has these traditional katas. And so the question that was happening in the live chat was how are we going to teach people the fundamentals without kata? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, don't you have to teach the fundamentals before people can play the game? So, so if skill is not just, you know, and the, the idea you'll always hear in this context is that I want to make these certain patterns of blocking and striking automatic so that when somebody attacks me, I'll have access to these skills and I'll be able to do them automatically. Mm-hmm. Can you explain why that really isn't a good description of how skill actually is expressed in, um, in, <laughs> um, in, in, in vivo, right. In, in, in context. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And it, that's in all sports, right. A lot of sports too. You need to swing before you can play golf yeah. and dribble yeah. before you can play soccer. Right. Um, 
the the fundamental idea I think we're trying to get across is that those are not really skills. Those decomposed movements, skills are functional information driven, right? Yep. I put my arm up to block you when you punch, right? Mm -hmm. It has a specific purpose and it's, it has to be driven it, the timing of it. The position of my arm is driven by what you're doing in front of me, the yep. information I get from your body. That's where the skill is, right? Not in just be able to produce the movement out of context. You know, the term we use decoupled yeah. right there, because a coach tells you to lift your, that's, that's aesthetics to me. That's not, skill, right? That's, and in some sports, aesthetics is, is part of the skill itself when you're being judged. But um, that's a big difference for me. You know, the idea that you can learn movements with, without them being driven by the information and then put them back into a situation, you know, that, you know, in soccer, you, you don't just, you, you know, pass, you need to learn when to pass and why to pass and use the information to drive the decision. I guess, I guess that's another part of it too, right? The decision make skill is decision-making, yeah. right? And you're taking away all the decision-making from an athlete when you're just getting them to do these, these movements out of context. So yeah. if I, if I have two athletes and I say to one of those athletes, right, you're going to throw a rear hand punch. Okay. And then you're going to block with, you know, a cross block say, um, and we just have them repeat that skill what is being missed that's actually necessary for them to be able to skillfully use that in a situation where they're having a live sparring match? I think, you know, the, the information, the information that drives why you want, like, even if it's your, you're the one initiating, there's a reason you do a certain punch because you detect uh, opening. Yep. Right. And so the information the, that's driving that moving, that's giving it a purpose and a function it is not there, right? You're just doing it because the coach you're, you're telling them to do it. Yeah. And we know it sounds like, Oh, okay. Well, what's the big deal. You could just plug it in, but we know that you move differently when you not, it's not purposeful like that. Um, and, and putting it back in is not as trivial as it sounds, right? Knowing when to do it and why to do it is not. Um, and you know, that's kind of the idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this comes down to the idea of representativeness, right? We're trying to make the practice as representative of the context in which it would be applied as possible. So we see this in the martial arts. I think it's a, the martial arts are a particularly beautiful place to kind of see how these dynamics can, can get out of control um, because we have the example of the live martial arts versus martial arts that, that don't practice live at all. Mm -hmm. And what we see is that if you look at how a... Um, a say an Aikido, an Aikidoka strikes when they're trying to, so you have the Uki, the person who's receiving the technique, right? So the Uki will strike, they'll throw a punch in order for the, um, the other athlete to throw them. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the way that, that Aikido punches are thrown, they're completely non-representative of how punches are thrown mm -hmm. in the street, right? Someone will mm -hmm. throw from a distance that is completely, you know, there's no, they don't actually have an affordance to land that strike when they initiate the strike. Mm -hmm. Right. And then also the way that they strike is, is completely telegraphed. It, the, the strike in fact exists to afford the capacity for it to be thrown. It doesn't mm -hmm. exist to allow that athlete to hit the other athlete. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I know exactly what you um, just brought to mind. I've been using this as, because I, I've been playing a lot of pickleball lately. Okay. And um, I'm playing with my young stepson. And the way that I play, like get it, trying to get him into it, learn it. So mm-hmm. I hit shots deliberately so they bounce waist high <laughs> right yeah, yeah. to him. Like I'm trying to afford him the action. I'm not trying to win points myself, <laughs> right? Because I'm trying to get rallies going. So that's kind of the same thing I think you're talking about. It's coming, yeah. the, the function of the punch, an original punch is to afford the, the reaction, which is totally different than a court to real match. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's some value to that because as you said, like mm-hmm. in order for the, for your, your, I'm uh, sorry, was it your son or your nephew? Devson, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He, he, you, you have to give him enough experience to sort of get, get off the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you can't, you can't try to win too early in this interaction mm-hmm. or the information is overwhelming for him. Um, but if you, if you were to play like that, if you were to give him that type of interaction forever, he would never become a skillful pickleball player. Yeah. And uh, you know, to me, that's the, the, the kind of fundamental difference of you know, we call decomposing versus yeah. scaling, right? Yeah. So he still has to pick up the flight of the ball. He's still he's swinging to get the ball back over the net. So the skills all still there. I just really made it easier, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. He doesn't have to move laterally as much and move backwards as much to adjust for different bounce heights and things like that. So, yeah, I think that's, that's yeah. yeah. So I think that's the fundamental. So repetitiveness is not meaning that everything has to be exactly the same as the competition, but there's certain key features. And one big one is the information for driven, right? The yeah. information you want, the similar information that drives the movement um, to be there. Yeah. Let's come back to that. When we get more deep into the, the constraints led approach, I want to okay. ground again, some conceptual stuff here. So one of the big influences in, um, in your approach and, and everyone who's kind of thinking about skill this way is Nikolai Bernstein. Mm-hmm. And he described two problems of motor control that are really important to understand. One is context conditioned variability. And mm-hmm. you have a beautiful quote from Rafa or Rafa Nadal about mm-hmm. that. So you can tell us a little bit about what specifically is context conditioned variability and why is it such a problem for a kind of repetition focused approach or top-down schema controlled approach to motor problems, motor problem solving. Yeah. So, so that's Bernstein kind of came out. So when he started working the, the, the essential idea of the motor program was there, right. That the idea that you pull in that case, it was more of a, like a piano player, you pull the sheet of music that forced a forehand stroke off this shelf and you send a command down, your brain doesn't sense command. You're, you know, this muscle does that, this muscle does this, and you swing. Um, the little Bernstein man in the head. And, yeah. <laughs> Bernstein came out and said, no way, that's never going to work because the, what the muscle, the actual output the muscles would generate completely depends on the context. You know, what position your body's starting in, how fatigued they are, all these factors. So the same muscle outputs will never produce the exact same a response because there's variability in the conditions and yeah nadal gives a great one where he talks about every tennis stroke being different because the ball spin trajectory you know maybe he worked out before he's tired all these things so the idea is that you can't you know that the the i think in the book i said you know the bernstein changed the problem that the 
motor control problem before he got there was how to reproduce the same outcome in the same conditions with the same movement. Bernstein came in. No, no, there's different in the middle, (laughs) right? The problem is how do you produce the same outcome under ever changing conditions is this context. How do I know to change my muscle force a little bit because the environment internal and external environment are changing. Yes. So one of the points you make in the, in the book that I thought was really interesting is this idea that, that, that human movement is inherently noisy, right? So uh, that Nadal quote is like every shot that you experience is actually different. So you're never going to get, um, you're never going to get a, you know, if you're playing tennis, you're never going to get a stroke from the other player and a shot coming in. That's the same in every way as some previous shot, there's always going to be a different in, in velocity, a different in spin rate, a difference in angle that it's coming in at a difference in where it came from on the other side of the court or the body positions that the, that the other athlete was in. So that's all external variation. So obviously the, the athlete needs to have some adaptability or, you know, from a schema, you know, what we might call the adjustability in order to execute whatever is the, you know, the optimal movement solution there. But also you point out that not only is there noise in the external environment, but as that athlete tries to execute their stroke in response, there's lots of noise actually in the way that their joints and muscles are working. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this, there's a really, um, we, this is something we kind of really hide <laughs> in a lot of, you know, yeah. and I'll give an example I like to give in one of my classes I teach. If you look at like fMRI research where they show, you know, the parts of the brain in color. Functional magnetic imaging. Yes. So they show you what parts of your brain lights up when you read a book. Yeah. Right? It looks like, okay, it's this part doing it. What, how those, they generate those things is they, they take a scan of your brain when you're doing nothing. Mm-hmm. And what you find is your whole brain is active <laughs> when yeah. you're just sitting there doing nothing. Then they have the read and your whole brain is still active, but these other little parts are slightly more active and they subtract the two images. So it makes it look like when you read only this part of your brain is active. Mm-hmm. Whereas we have these, you know, we call them resting potentials. Your cells are yeah. constantly firing. Um, so yeah, we have this kind of background noise always in our, our body. Um, you know, I give the example, your heart rate variability, you know, your heart rate is not meant to beat like a metronome. If it does, it's a very unhealthy thing. Yeah. It, it varies its timing. And so we have all this kind of noisiness within our body, um, just naturally, never mind if we're tired, <laughs> we, we're at the end of a tennis match or we work, you know, a heavy weightlifting session before those all change the external environment too. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to what Bernstein described as the degrees of freedom problem. So I want to introduce an idea that I've thought about for a while, which is that I think that we're, we're, we're inherently sort of analogical creatures. We think through in analogies and that analogies, unfortunately can become, they're they're very powerful for us, but they can also be traps in the way that they frame. And we think about things. So if we look back to say Descartes and how he was sort of defining knowledge and, and how we should relate to reality, he almost starts to look at the world through the frame of what a clock operates like, Mm -hmm. right? It's like a clockwork universe. And then as we go forward, you talked about in the, in the 1920s, when Bernstein was doing his work, the, the analogy was sort of like the automatic automated piano playing sheet. Mm -hmm. And the current analogy that we hear all the time 
is that the mind is a computer. And so we think of, of, uh, of a movement skill as like a software that we install, right? Mm -hmm. It's a motor program. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to coach Rob Gray and he's going to install the, the best version of the, you know, hitting package, right? The baseball hitting package. Yeah. And then, then, you know, my central controller is going to hit that pattern when someone throws a baseball that I can hit. Right. And, and if the mind is a computer, then the way that we think about the body is as a machine, right? So now the computer program is, is, is sending the joints and muscles, a, a program, and they operate it like a machine. But my understanding is that, I mean, essentially both of these analogies really fail when we dig deeper into them. The brain doesn't really operate like a computer and the muscles really, really don't operate like machines. Like machines are generally built off of, um, off of, uh, joints that have one degree of freedom. So can you explain a little bit about how a human body the muscles themselves are inherently noisy and how, and why we have this problem of the degrees of freedom and then what it offers us that a machine doesn't have. Yeah, that, that's a good question. Yeah. I think, you know, the, the, whether the brain computes or is a computer, people get <laughs> what compute means that they can have a whole debate about that. But the, the biggest issue I find for me is it's a very, that I don't like is the assumption that the body and action and movement is just subservient to thinking, right? Mm-hmm. The brain tells the body what to do, then it do. So our body is basically an Xbox controller, right? <laughs> a, and then it just moves. There's no intelligence in your muscles or like, like you think about what the representation of intelligence is Rodan, the thing mm-hmm. that someone's sitting there doing nothing, right? Whereas there's a lot of, the idea of degrees of freedom is you have all these different ways to move um, different solutions you can do. And the, the idea of going forward, once you get into this, I'm sure we'll, like self-organization is there's a lot of intelligence at the lower levels of the system. Yeah. It doesn't need to be told all what to do. So, so that, that's the big one for me that the, um, and, and the idea, and the idea is simply that um, the number of the amount of software you would need, if you believe in the doll, mm-hmm. you would have to have a program for every, that specifies the joints for every possible one of these combinations. It would be the biggest computer program ever. Um, you know, and I think I was thinking about this today. Uh, you know, I think the now, um, when I was coming into work, this is sort of mirrors what we thought about weather, right? Mm-hmm. When we started thinking about weather, we thought it was a complicated problem, right? Yeah. There's lots of variables, barometric pressure, wet, wind. All we need to do is know all of them and then mm-hmm. put them all into a model and we'd be able to predict weather perfectly. And I think that's one of the motivations for developing computers, actually, <laughs> that if we could handle all these, yeah. but it turns out weather's a complex problem, right? It's the variables interact in unpredictable little ways. And no matter how much we can process them or put them in math models, we can't predict weather perfectly way ahead of time because there's too many. And I think that's what we're seeing with the body. You know, we can't, the computer analogy is treating it like it's complicated, right? If I just, yeah, there's a lot of things I have to take into account, but I just, if I could specify all the joint angles and muscles, I can figure things out. Whereas the there's too much noise and degrees of freedom available that it doesn't really fit that model. 
Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I went off on yeah, yeah. a very tangent. Yeah. Ooh, I just I was thinking go. about that this morning, so I wanted yeah, to yeah. use it somewhere. <laughs> well, we've talked about that a bit, and um, so I, I don't know if you're familiar with John Reiki, but he's one of my main, um, you know, my main influences, and he talks a lot about the idea of uh, complicated versus complex problems, and also ill-defined versus well-defined problems, which is another aspect of problem formation that's, that's really interesting. But the complex versus complicated, um, a complicated problem, no matter how many details there are in it essentially has a linear solution. So he describes this as algorithmic. An algorithm is when you know that you can derive a precise solution, right? Mm -hmm. But complex problems um, are what he would describe as uh, combinatorially explosive. So I love that. Yeah. 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 So chess is the example that, that he gives that I absolutely love, which is like, Chess is a relatively simple set of, of rules and moves available. But if you, if you map out, so there's, I think there's an average of 30 legal moves available per turn, plus an average of 64 per turns per game, which means that the potential games, the potential games that could play out in that space are 30 to the 64 which is comparable to the number of electrons in the universe. It's in the same approximate <laughs> order of magnitude. So there's no, there's no way to derive an algorithmically correct way to execute a chess game or to look at any specific situation in chess and know precisely the right next move. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's not a complicated problem. It's a complex problem. And for complex problems, we use heuris- heuristic control. Right? We're, we have biases towards what we pay attention to and how we operate something. Mm-hmm. So does that all code for you? That all makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think I like that, uh, that way of thinking about it, you know, um, the, you know, that's kind of non-deterministic, right? You can't, yeah. you can't, there's no. so many, and I, I liked in the, the explosive, like interact, the small interactions just make yeah. things go off and <laughs> completely so unpredictable. Use, I use relatively raising, simple beginnings. You know, you get I use raising kids as my example of complex. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Completely unpredictable. Yeah. yeah. You can't, no, no, you cannot specify your parenting input such that you can have a predictable mm-hmm. thing, which is really interesting because, you know, BF Skinner in behaviorism famously said, you know, give me, uh, you know, a healthy, well-formed infant and, and I can give you a, a, um, a, a thief and a doctor and a lawyer and et cetera, right? The idea that we do have this deterministic ability to apply mm-hmm. um, inputs and achieve deterministic outputs in human behavior. And yeah. in some sense, like, I think what you're, what you're saying is that not just at a psychological level, but at a motor control level, this is clearly not the case. Mm-hmm. We don't have that ability to determine the outcomes. There's always emergent aspects. Yes, I definitely, I think, um, you know, uh, I, this, the, yeah, the number of conditions and context yeah. and noise, yeah, all kind of makes the human body is a complex system. I think, yeah. I don't know how you could see it as otherwise. Yeah. yeah. I think another example in your, your um, del- deliberate practice in a way is it yeah. tried to did the same thing, B.F. Skinner. I'm sure people yeah. would hate me saying that, but it's because the same kind of thing. You know, we can build, we can get expertise through this yeah. combination of everyone practice, will get the same <laughs> yeah. results. I mean, I've always, yeah. 
I've had so many people quote the the 10,000 hour rule to me and it just drives me nuts. I'm like, there are, there's no amount of hours that I could play basketball that would ever result in me achieving <laughs> the capacities that Michael Jordan has or LeBron James has or yeah. Steph Curry yeah. has, right? Yeah. There, that's not within my, you know, that's not within my grasp. Yeah. Right? My talent set doesn't stretch to that. And, you know, I, you know, I've seen research that shows the deliberate practice, you know, uh, something like 10% of the result when you look at, uh, at elite athletes, like differences in how much they practice. Yeah. Like everybody who's in the NBA has practiced enough. Right. Yeah. And some yeah, of them like- practice a lot and some of them practice not that much. And it, we, we lionize stories like Kobe Bryant. Right. Mm-hmm. And we think that Kobe Bryant's success was because he, because of his work ethic. And we think, okay, mm-hmm. well, would Allen Iverson have been greater than Kobe Bryant if he had practiced like Kobe Bryant? <laughs> yeah. Very different. Yeah. Or, or was Allen's, uh, Allen's approach to him to hit practice actually maybe closer to optimal for his individual temperament and physicality, mm-hmm. right? And given that he's 160 pounds, Mm-hmm. and hyper explosive and has to get smashed by these big athletes, maybe practicing four or five hours a day on top of the gameplay would have been much more destructive for him than someone like Kobe, who's mm-hmm. much more physically robust to the, um, the demands for, of the sport. For sure. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, that all fit those, these interactions and these, you know, they get the constraints, you know, are so different. Um, and I think that's another big, and I know you're totally the individuality of, of learning that, you know, kind of another thing in the rep, rep, this revolution, the idea of people don't learn in the same way. They don't move in the same way. You know, I think is a big point out of it for sure. So I want to go back because I I still feel like I'd like you to give a little bit clearer definition of the degrees of freedom problem. Like, I think it's such a fundamental thing for people to understand, like what is why is that a problem for understanding motor control? Like what is the degrees of problem? Why is it a problem for understanding motor control? And what does it actually give us in, in, in making us what we are more adaptable than something like a machine? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's, so it's kind of this funny (laughs) flipping on the head, right? So, okay. If we accept there's no one way to move and we have lots of different options we could do to something like serve a volleyball or something like that. Now we've created another problem we've created the problem of choice, right? There's so many options. Human beings aren't good at, how do I get a volleyball over the net? How much should I bend my elbow? Use my wrist? Should I use my soldier? Should I bend my knee? So we've created degrees of freedom. I I kind of equate with options really, Um, you know, uh, for each possible joint angle muscle, you you could, you could specify it into typical particular um, things in the, in the physical, but it's basically options. And so, it creates this problem of how, how do we get some initial proficiency and how do we find the optimal solution in this massive sea of all these different options? So mm-hmm. that's that. The, so it's basically the problem of coordination, right? Yeah. Um, so that's what Bernstein, not only, you know, he fundamentally changed the question of what it means to be skillful from learning the right technique and being able to repeat it to being the problem of coordination. How do I pick the, 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 the set of all these possible options and how do I change the option I'm using based on the, the situation, I think is, is the idea of the degrees of freedom of all of them. Yeah, so 
one of the ways that I teach this idea when I'm, when I'm working with students is I will, um, we'll, we'll do a drill where we do a three ball juggling cascade with two partners. So Mm -hmm. we can, you know, it's, it's hard for beginners to just do a three ball juggling cascade, but if you have four hands, it's actually easy to, to Mm -hmm. start, start getting this. You can get the, all three balls moving and in the air pretty much consistently. So I just, I just show people that we're going to do this and I have them figure it out. And then I point out to them that they, that they adopt certain, it depends on the the pairing, but they adopt certain patterns, right? So one thing that, you know, that is pretty common, for instance, is we'll always catch with the same hand and always throw with the other hand. So we'll catch, shuffle, throw, catch, shuffle, throw, catch, shuffle, throw. Right. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, well, are you, are you, um, are you catching coming down on the ball or catching coming up on the ball? Right. So that's a degree of freedom. And then we can look at like, are you throwing the ball relatively high and creating an arc? Or are you shuffling it very quickly in between the hands? That's a degree of freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we introduce that, like, there's, there's many ways that you could solve this problem. And there's many ways that you can introduce different, uh, different elements to it that can make it more, more challenging and more interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, you can, you can change which ball, which hand throws, Right. You, right. can, yeah. you can do all these things. And so the, all those are, are, are illustrations to me of, of degrees of freedom. And then what I point out to people is that um, when they initially do this, what they're looking for is a stable solution in that. Mm-hmm. But also what I think is interesting is that if we think about degeneracy, what, what's going to happen is that you, you find your stable solution, but you're going to make errors right? Your timing is not going to be a hundred percent consistent every time. And so you're, you know, the hand that's catching has to have variability in its timing. It has to be able to adjust. It has to be able to adapt to, to shifts in the other person. Cause that coordination pattern has noise in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we need that noise. We need that, um, potential, that degeneracy to allow us to adapt around that central coordination solution. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 No, no. I think that's, a, that's a great way to think about it. I think, uh, another example I, I heard recently and I've is, you know, we need like asymmetry in our, in our stride and our legs. Like mm-hmm. if it, we were perfectly repetitive, we wouldn't be adaptable. <laughs> like the noise actually, the variation actually helps us to adjust, adapt to the conditions. Yeah. That's a, that's a really nice way to think of it. Yeah. A Darian Barr has talked about the idea that like everybody actually has a, uh, has a, a leg that they dominantly sort of power with and a leg that they dominantly buffer with. Mm-hmm. So you have, when you're running, there's one leg that's going to be putting more force in per cycle. And then one leg that's going to be maintaining the balance in the cycle. So every time you put reduce force in the ground, there's a certain amount of noise. So you might be starting to deviate slightly from, from that optimal pathway. And so you can kind of, you, you differentiate the, uh, by, by having a kind of labor division between different legs, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you allow them to fulfill different functions and then become more adaptive to providing that aspect of the movement solution that you're looking for. Yeah, no, I love it. That to me is some of the intelligence I'm I'm talking about in the body, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't try to tell it what to do, you know that that's sort of the idea of the a motor synergy, right? They're they're working together on their own on the fly, 
um, to, to, to adapt to this adjustment without, you know, and, and it's happening, you know, the same thing with the ball thing that task, like if you get a, a bad toss, you might throw the ball slightly higher <laughs> to mm-hmm. give them more time for you. You know, people yeah. make these conversations. If you let the system, you know, work to get, let it go on its own. It, that will never happen if you tell it exactly what to do. Like if it, or if it was repeating, you have to repeat the same throw every time you can adjust to this and, and have this intelligence in terms of work, the parts working together in that really nice way. So if you, if you um, imagine uh, a couple of robots that are given this, this juggling task, right. Mm-hmm. And each of the robots joints is basically a single degree of freedom, right? So people say that like the elbow is a hinge joint, but it's, mm-hmm. it's not just a hinge joint. It has this ro- rotational capacity, mm-hmm. but maybe, you know, but when we design robots, it's really hard to give them. We don't, we don't have, we haven't been able to give robots really the intelligence to control the degrees of freedom that a human being has. So it's going to yeah. have this, this one thing. So you'd have to have the, the tolerances for the timing and the, 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 the structure of the throw incredibly tight to keep the system from breaking down because there'd be no degeneracy, no ability to, to respond to changes. Right. So a slight error in timing would just propagate through the system without any buffer, Mm -hmm. but a human being has, you know, we're, we have a, a much wider set of potential solutions, which means that it can be less stable to start with, but then we have that ability to stabilize using those options. Yes. And we have this ability and yeah, the, the gen, the ability to adjust and adapt to yeah. multiple, you know, weird tennis stroke behind the back under the leg, you know, incredible things come out. Um, you're right. But yeah, you're right. That there's this kind of, so the degrees of freedom and this kind of adaptability are all a problem and adaptability are almost the opposite ends of the spectrum, right? You, 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 yeah. know, you, you have this wonderful choice, which is difficult at first, um, and, but then it gives you the, all this amazing ability to adapt. Yeah. So we've talked about Bernstein, the, the other huge sort of influence in the way that we understand this, I think is important to understand kind of the next thing, which is, which is JJ Gibson. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about what Gibson brought to our understanding of motor control, um, and, and how, how perception and motor control have to be deeply interwoven? So how does Gibson fill out the picture that Bernstein started to, to develop for us in movement control? Yeah. So one, one way I like to parallel them is so um, Bernstein identified that there's all this variability and degrees of freedom and movement as a problem that we need to solve. Gibson essentially did the same thing with information, right? He, mm-hmm. he's, 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 for example, how do we know something, how far away it is? Cause the size of it changes both on its real size, its image, you know, how, where its position is, you know, so there's things varying in the images. If we focus just on vision all the time and we have all these options Whereas, so he and identified, well, there's that that's going on, but we can pick out these key, he called them invariants, um, information sources from the, the field that can tell us what we really want to know and what we need to control our actions. So his real, the thing that really, to me, is the foundation of the kind of ecological dynamics and ecological approach is direct perception, right? The idea that within their environment, if we just look for it or, you know, it, there's information that specifies what we need to act. There's information that tells us how long we have before a ball is going to get there. 
We, it's specifying by that he means we can pick it up directly. We don't need to do any computation, interpretation, prediction. So we don't need that computer we talked about <laughs> on the information side either, right? Yeah. Um, we, there's just if we just can link our movement to these information sources, we can, you know, you know, um, achieve our goals. Um, and so critically, the reason we call it, you know, ecological psychology, that's his mm-hmm. his air that he founded, is that in order to, because it's information driven and it's specific to the situation, you have to consider the ecology of the mover. Yeah. Performer, right. You can't understand movement unless you understand the environment it's happening in. Cause that's the, where the information comes from. Yeah. yeah I've, I've heard it said that, um, that, that Gibson asked not what's in your head, but what your head is inside of that. That's the yeah. critical thing to, to understanding how perception operates. Yeah. I think someone pointed out to me, technically that's was William Mace that had okay. that quote, but he's one of Ginson's kind of contemporary. But okay. uh, so just to be, so I don't get in trouble for but, that again. But the ecological but, um, psychology but, is sort of based exactly. around that idea. Exactly. So, to, to give an example, like you, so you, your, your main sport that you study is, is baseball, right? Mm-hmm. So traditionally the way that baseball is described is, okay, so you're an outfielder, you're center fielder, standing in the middle of center field, the pitcher throws the ball, the ball arrives at the plate, the, hit, the hitter hits the ball and it takes off off of his bat. And the traditional way of describing how the, the, the center fielder responds is that they create a mental model based off of the speed and trajectory of the ball coming off the bat that tells them where that ball will arrive. And then they move to the spot where they arrive. Mm-hmm. So, so your claim is that this is not this... This isn't a, way, a good way to actually describe how motor control operates. And you've actually done some research, I believe, that shows that that athletes behave in a way that is not consistent with this and that is consistent with um, a model where they're picking up information continuously online as they're watching that ball. Can you talk, can you give an example of that, please? Yeah, yeah. So so let's take a back step back there. So the the fundamental idea, you know, that Gibson didn't like. So the reason that we need to do that prediction and calculation of the ball's trajectory is because the our perception, the information is not good enough. It's improper. There's something about the inf- just looking at the ball. We have to do some processing because it's so we, it's some commonly called indirect perception. So. Yeah, so I've done some in hitting, but in the, the fielding example you give, a bunch of other people have done, showing that you really don't need to do all this complicated prediction and, and calculation. If you just start running and run so that you keep, you know, the particular, there's a few different variables people have identified, but one is the acceleration of the image of the ball on, on your eye. If you just run to keep that constant, Right. An e- uh, even easier example I'll, I'll give is, is like an American football. You're, you're trying to tackle someone. They're running. If you run so as to keep the angle between you and the runner, what's called the bearing angle constant, um, you will intercept the runner guaranteed. You never have to predict where they're going to be and when. If you run, so that angle starts to get bigger, you slow, you speed up, it starts to get smaller, you slow down. So you just keep that angle. And that's kind of the Gibson's idea, information movement coupling. You're Mm -hmm. coupling your movement to this information source from the environment. You're not calculating anything. 
um, you will be guaranteed to intercept them. And bird, we find birds use this. Sometimes this is used for navigation and sailing, <laughs> the bearing angle strategy. So, so yeah, it's a very fundamental. And so in baseball, we see a bunch of evidence of that. You know, fielders don't ever just run, sprint to a location, stop and wait <laughs> for the ball. They kind of catch it on the run. Um, it explains why if you've ever played baseball, balls hit right at you paradoxically are the hardest to catch yeah. because if you look at the information, it's not very um, reliable at the start. It's hard to get set up that kind of coupling, but yeah, yeah that's the basic idea that we don't really need to bring in all this. So one of the Gibson, oh, Gibson's really ideas he wanted to do was right. Maybe that's the way it works, but it's not, is it not, it's not really necessary. That was, he always wanted to do the simplest mm -hmm. explanation. So we don't really need to do all that prediction stuff that we could never really understand because we can't get inside your head. We, what we can do is just couple our movement to the information. If we find the right information source. Okay. Sorry. That was a long, so, no, that's great. <laughs> I wanted to go back for a second because I, there's a, so we're talking about the, the ecological aspect of vision and vision tracking and how that, that helps us interact with the environment. And obviously there's auditory and other cues, but there's also internal perception cues that are important to understand. Mm -hmm. So if you, um, if you, if your ankle turns over when you're running, right. The time that it takes your brain to process that and then send a correction down is generally going to be too long to correct mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. So you have nerves and you have, you have, you have neural control loops that are happening at the joint and at the spinal level, if I understand correctly. Mm -hmm. So you, so the way that we, that we solve that, um, degrees of freedom problem is partly by having a kind of distributed cognition or distributed neural control that isn't just in the head, but is actually at kind of at every level of the tissue. Yes, exactly. Um, the analogy I, I tried to, you know, in, and in particular, the, the, so at the tissue and muscle level, they're working kind of, they have local rules they're following, mm -hmm. like local information. You're right. You're sensory sensing the ankles bend too much. They're keep, they have these local kind of intelligence laws that they're working by that don't involve just following higher order instructions. You know, the classic yeah. examples of a flock of birds, right? Yeah. You know, the, the, just staying away from your neighbor. This little simple rule that a system follows and creates this incredible emergent overall behavior. Yeah. Or we could look at, um, you know, the type of commands that go through a, uh, uh, an anthill, right? Uh, mm -hmm. a team of ants. They have a relatively simple set of commands that create this very complex behavior. And that's essentially how you, your neurology works. I was thinking about this when I was reading the book yesterday. Um, there's this, like, we think that we, we tend to think that that what we are is just the thing that sits inside our head and the body is kind of uh, like a machine that the brain sits inside of. Mm -hmm. Right. But I was reading yeah. recently about some very strange things that have happened where like people have gotten heart transplants and they've had like cravings for specific foods oh, right. that were the, that, that were the mm -hmm. heart. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about the fact that like, if you, if you like took Michael Jordan's brain and, uh, and you inserted it into Kobe Bryant. Um, mm. Like you wouldn't necessarily have a great basketball player because, you know, especially if you took, you know, let's say you just clone Michael Jordan himself. Right. And you just leave his body in a, 
in a vat and it, you know, it develops until it's 25 <laughs> yeah. years old. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you have this perfect physical thing, right? It's been electrically stimulated. So the muscles are there. It looks exactly like Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. You take Michael Jordan's brain and you insert it into that. And the idea would be right. Like, okay, so you've got all the skill, all the awareness of Michael Jordan. And now you have this, this body that has all the action capabilities that, that Michael Jordan had, mm-hmm. but <laughs> What I think is that actually you'd have very poor control at all the local levels that it'd be, you know, it'd be a retard. He'd be running around yeah. this retarded body. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's a view that, you know, and part of what makes Michael Jordan great is he adapt. He came up with these to solve the degrees of freedom problem for his own individual constraints and abilities. Yeah. And those would all change. Right. Um, it, I guess if I want to go back to my old analogy, it's kind of like handing, you have a great video game player and you hand him an Xbox, could take away his Xbox controller and hand him a PSP, PlayStation controller, right? Oh, the body, the body doesn't matter. It's just, it's all in the player, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's kind of this, this kind of bias we've had for a long time that like the body, you're right. It's just the machinery that, you know, expresses the brain's intelligence, right? It's not anything on its own, um, which I, 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 you know, I, so I think you're right. (laughs) So skillfulness is, is an attunement and an intelligence that's developed kind of at every layer up, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have the, the individual muscle cells are being attuned to the way in which they, they coordinate. Right. And then the, the central motor neuron and then the joint and then the spine and then the brain, like they're, they're the motor control, isn't localized only in any one area. It's, it's a relationship between all of them. For sure. Yeah. And I think that's another one of Gibson's ideas, you know, that even it even changes the very perception, like his idea of affordance is that idea that we don't perceive lengths, widths, speeds, we perceive passability of a gap, which depends on our body, right? So we perceive the world in terms of what our body can do. Yeah. Um, it, it allow what the environment allows given our body's capacities. So we, you know, sometimes the word he used, which we don't talk is effectivities is the yeah. opposite of affordance. So the environment affords stuff, our body that our body allows through these effectivities and capacities, right? So yeah, just moving a brain would be a whole different set of capacities that you would have to adapt to and adjust to. And, and, and right. It would, you would not be, optimal, right? That's why, you know, athletes can succeed with so many different body types and abilities and right. Because they, they've, you know, playing within themselves There's lots of phrases we kind of use um, to kind of express that. I think they've solved the constraints they're solved for the affordances created by their own structure. So just quickly, do you mind kind of digging into what a constraint is and Mm -hmm. what an affordance is and then how those relate to effectivities or, or action capabilities? Sure. Yeah. So, so a constraint is a, so we, if we start with the degrees of freedom problem, again, we have too many of these options, mm-hmm. right? A constraint, the, 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 the funny, the reason, uh, you know, a lot of people, you start, why constraint? It sounds like such, how am I helping you with a constraint? Constraints mm-hmm. sounds like a bad word, Yeah. but yeah. one of the things, a constraint is taking away a degree of freedom, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's helping you by taking away an option, Right. Um, and sometimes we, a coach can do this externally. Sometimes we do this ourselves. And then the classic example is, is Bernstein's uh, freezing degrees of freedom, right? What he proposed that one of the ma- ways we might get initial proficiency is by 
taking one, taking some degrees of freedom away. I don't know what to do with my elbow. I won't use it. <laughs> I'll lock my arm there. I've, I've simplified my movement problem a little bit because mm-hmm. I don't need to worry about that. So I've, a constraint is something that takes away a degrees of freedom or changes the degrees of freedom, I guess. is. So yeah. in your example of the catching, the, the catching, you're adding, you're changing the task constraints by make, distributing it across two people. You're actually mm-hmm. adding degrees of freedom in that, in that yeah. way, but they're distributing yeah. them differently uh, in an interesting way. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that, so an that's example that I was thinking of yeah. you used yeah. example of a volleyball serve. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of another example, which is, you know, you've, we've all heard the phrase, like you throw like a girl, um, which, you know, it's, it's, Say there's lots of well. girls who throw <laughs> yeah. really well and lots of men who throw not well. So yeah. that's, this is a little outdated, but, but there is this thing that someone who hasn't had a kind of lifetime of, of mm-hmm. throwing is going to tend to throw only with their arm. Mm-hmm. So they're going to remove the degrees of freedom of how to organize the torso and how to organize the legs. And they're just going to throw like this, right? It's very awkward looking. It's very um, stiff, right? And it's not very effective. Yeah. But, but there's a lot less for them to try to control Mm -hmm. than if they're going to, you know, lean back, lift their leg up, stride forward, open their hips, time their shoulder and elbow, everything through that. Right. So that, that's a good example of, of, of frozen degrees of, uh, of, uh, of movement, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And other two ones I like to give are dancing and downhill skiing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right? Your upper body. You, so another way to freeze instead of locking something is just make everything do the same thing. Yep. Right. So you sway back and forth with your upper body doing the same thing as your lower body, which looks very dorky and not very <laughs> creative, mm. but it gives you some proficiency to get going. Right. That I, I think that's the big thing about it. Um, and I, I always give the volleyball example. If I told you, you can't start playing volleyball a game until you can do a jump serve. <laughs> you, you probably wouldn't, not many people would be playing volleyball. Right? Yeah. There's too That's too complex. We got to get you on the court and get you motivated yeah. and all those other factors that matter. But yeah, throwing the right throwing is a great example. If you don't learn the va- basic coordination pattern from when you're younger by having to throw, you're, you're going to have to solve the degrees of freedom problem later <laughs> and it's going to look o- uh, ugly. Yeah. So um, to go back to constraints, so con- constraints basically set the, 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 the potentials that are available within a agent arena relationship. Right. So within parkour, I think it's funny. You'll often hear people say, screw gravity. I'm like, your whole sport would be meaningless without gravity. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. Like uh-huh. it's not parkour anymore. <laughs> like it would be you imagine, easy. Like, when, yeah, if you could just like, float. Yeah. yeah like I, actually, that's a good example. Like imagine moving into an obstacle course in a zero G environment. Yeah. Like uh, a parkour athlete's skill set wouldn't necessarily have a high degree of transfer. Mm-hmm. Right. Some of the acrobatics of being able to twist and write and, and see yourself in the environment would be great. But like, there's all these expectations, all these couplings to how gravity is continuously pulling you down. That would, would that, that would disappear. And that would, you know, initially anybody moving into a zero G environment who hasn't been trained in it is going to be a total, total wreck motor control wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think, you know, what I would say, they're kind of expressing I, the idea there is that 
for most people, like gravity is a very severe constraint because of yeah. the way we tend to move. It's once you become a great parkour, you're actually making it less of a constraint because you can, yeah. you're not, it's not gone. Obviously it's still a constraint, but now by the way that you move, you can, cause constraints interact. So gravity yeah. interacts with how you move. So you're actually yeah. pushing beyond the boundaries that the normal people that don't do parkour would have of, of gravity. Yeah. As your action capabilities expand the way that you, mm -hmm. the way that you perceive the constraints changes, which is which is the opening up of affordances. Exactly. That was a perfect segue into yeah. the, the other term. Yeah. Uh, so affordance opportunity for action. So um, the more, so the, whether it's staying longer in the air, run, getting through a gap and defenders, you know, getting to a ball, um, you know, the more action capacity you have, the more affordances you have in your opportunities for action, whether you take them or not is a different story. Um, yeah. You know, the example I gave in a book like Nadal, obviously compared to you and I, he could decide to run around a backhand and play a forehand yeah. <laughs> if he really wanted. You, you and I so probably don't practice. have that affordance yeah. available to us. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking about that example and I was thinking about like, so... Uh, never mind. I, I'll, I'll drop that one. Um, okay. But... So you're talking about that. One of the things you talk about that's really interesting is how your perception literally changes based on what your action capabilities are. So, yeah. so this, this, this ties into the idea that, that what we perceive isn't a accurate model of external reality from which we, we then derive how we can possibly move to it, but we actually see the world through how that information couples to our action capabilities. So you talk yeah. about the idea that, you know, that when an, when a um, a baseball hitter is in a hot streak, the ball looks bigger to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So again, kind of paralleling uh, Gibson, he, he, Gibson and Bernstein. This is Gibson's kind of the the he re, redefined what the problem of perception is. What what is your perceptual system trying to do? The yeah. traditional view is it's trying to create this general purpose representation of what's out there that you can use for anything. Um, so I'm going to measure distances, sizes, like creating an internal map of the world. When Gibson said, no, it's just trying to find the information it needs for your action you're trying to perform. So it's it, what you perceive is, is relative to what you're trying to do and what your action, what your body affords you and stuff. So you, you're not perceiving the qualities of the world. You're perceiving what it affords you. So when I'm, playing really well, the ball affords hitting <laughs> more yeah. than when it doesn't. So I, I see it as bigger. You see it differently. Okay. Yeah. 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 And that's, I mean, I, I experienced this, we talk about parkour vision, right? But mm -hmm. it's a very interesting thing how you, you can, like, I'll be walking through an area and I'll look at, um, I'll look at something and think, okay, I think that's possible, mm -hmm. but it, it's, I have a very different perception of the environment when I'm warmed up and attuned to my sport than when I'm walking and just have other things going on. Yeah. And it very, you, you have this sense of like almost a window opening, right? There's mm -hmm. this very interesting thing where like all of a sudden the affordance to jump will, will appear yeah. <laughs> or it didn't appear before, or you might, you might, you know, you, we can, like you have enough of a cognitive model and a representation of, of how you move that you can sort of think, I think this version of me would be able to do that, but I don't feel it right now. Mm -hmm. But then you have to get into that state 
And it, it may not, like you may not, it may not be afforded to you and you'd expect yeah. it. Or it can be the opposite. You can be like, I totally didn't think that that was a thing. And then now that I'm here, all of a sudden it's just there for me. Yeah. No. And then uh, like, a, I think that's getting into calibration, right? Uh, calibrating your abilities to the environment mm-hmm. is a large part of this. And we lose calibration really easy. I would say, you know, parkour is like a fantastic example of affordances because you're completely ignoring what things are designed for. Yeah, right? oh, yeah. You're not perceiving what they're designed for. You're perceiving what they afford, which yeah. is exactly what given the, the example I use is, is cats. Like cats could get less whether yeah. that's a bookshelf, that's a yeah. bed, that's a yeah. bed. That's a, yeah, like, they don't a bed care what things were designed for. Yeah. And that's what parkour is a lot about, right? It's, it's not, yeah. it's a picking up opportunities for actions and things, not by how the environment is designed, but actually picking up information. Yeah. Later, I want to ask you some questions about mental representations, because there's something interesting about the fact that there's the, obviously there's action capabilities, but there's also a mental approach that changes. There's a way of perceiving the environment that you have to learn and and to recognize, but uh, let's, let's come back to that later. We've talked about constraints and I want to talk, uh, I want to go specifically into, can you explain what the constraints led approach to motor learning is and, and why that's something that that people might want to be aware of and might want to start integrating into their coaching. Yeah. So, so constraints is kind of constraints are all around us. Right. And yeah. uh, all, all coaching, I put this out on Twitter and yeah. people got yeah. all coaching is constraints manipulation, yeah. right? That's all you can do. Mm-hmm. Like, and so an instruction is a constraint equipment is a constraint, the environment. Yeah. So but the constraints led approach for me is deliberately manipulating some constraints to, in particular, trying to get athletes to explore different solutions, right? So usually for me, the way I use it involves taking away something they're already using. So you get a lot of athletes that get kind of stuck in a certain movement pattern and you want to take it away from them and get them to explore options without telling them, okay, here's how you move, right? So it's it's kind of a purposeful manipulation of a constraint to try to, you know, one of the examples of, you know, a lot of people use all the time is in soccer or basketball using, changing the number of players and space yeah. available on the field, right? So if you have a team that's, you know, constantly just holding the ball and not passing and moving by changing the constraints of the number of players and spacing, I'm making that, that solution less attractive and difficult to use because <laughs> players are right up in their face now. So they have to try it's sending you out and getting you to explore something different. So that's kind of how I think of the constraints that approach. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the great examples that I liked early on is uh, if you're, if you're trying to get a baseball, a basketball player to have a higher arc on their shot, mm-hmm. telling them to, to arc their shot more is a, is a relatively poor control strategy to achieve the, the result that you're looking for. You may get a higher arc, but destabilize the other aspects of the performance. Mm. But if you put a barrier, then they'll automatically arc their shot without having to manipulate the way they're thinking about shooting to the same degree. Yes. Um, and so well, I, I want to go back a little bit, or I want to go in a different direction because I think it helps really understand this, which is the role of variation. So we've talked about the fact that, that, that the environment or the, the constraints, the conditions in which skill is expressed are always changing. Right. Mm -hmm. And 
the 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 movement strategies available to us need to be adaptable at all the time. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that you you talk a lot about is this idea that 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 thinking about movement skills as like having to be built up from fundamental building blocks is kind of the wrong way to approach it. There's not an ideal way. There's not one ideal way to take a shot on goal or to shoot a basketball or to throw a punch Mm -hmm. um, or to throw a specific type of punch even. Right. Because all those things are actually um, those, they're, they're actually have to be adaptable to the specific conditions that they're being expressed in. Right. As well as the variations in, in the athlete. So actually with constraints that talk about um, like, uh, like biological constraints of the athlete, environmental constraints, mm-hmm. and then is it social constraints or the other aspect? The, the typical Which one in, in Newell's model is, is um, so individual yeah. uh, environmental and task. task so okay. task is like rules, yeah. all equipment and, and social constraints are usually, you know, you probably in yeah. the environment you would put yeah. it, but social constraints are a big one too. For sure. Yeah. So, I mean, like, um, the whole clinch game in, in Muay Thai, mm-hmm. um, is essentially, uh, well, a lot of it is invalidated once the constraint that the task rule of not being allowed to use a headbutt mm-hmm. enters. There's many things that you do when you're not allowed to headbutt that you can't do <laughs> once headbutts become uh, available to you. And obviously, right. uh, you know, there's tons of examples of this in combat sports. Like you can't really stand like a Muay Thai fighter. If someone can take you down, you you, you just, it it no longer is an effective response to the constraints. So, so we have, we have variation on that level and, and you, you, you kind of reject this idea that there's these, these, uh, these fundamentals. We need, we need to have variability, but you also talk about the idea that, that there are invariants in performance. Mm-hmm. So, so if you, if you look at Steph Curry and you compare him to me shooting a basketball, mm-hmm. how does the way that variation exists for him cha- different than the way that it exists for me? Yeah. So that's, that's a good question. So I think, you know, so by invariance, I mean, you know, there's su- certain, properties that have to be there for it to be otherwise we would never be able to tell skills apart when we looked at them like yeah. there must be something about a basketball sh- jump shot that we could look at a video and even we can look at the po- i don't know if you've seen yeah. point light displays yeah, yeah. you can tell um so his you know uh, you we see tend to people have more kind of the, the functional variability we, we talked about before when you were talking about your ankle and that so where the body parts are working together. Um, and, and so it's still things varying. So his shoulder and elbow are working together to get the release point the same, even when he's tired or there's a fender. He has to lean back a bit more versus your unexperienced people tend to have more overall variability in, in less of that. Um, you know, sometimes we talk, you know, um, there's this analysis where you can do, you separate bad, bad variability for good, good, bad variability is taking you away from achieving your goal. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when you, if you jump too high at the start of the jump shot and then you 
keep <laughs> varying your do everything the same, your shot's going to go way too long because yeah. you have too much force. Whereas a more skilled person would con, you know, counter that over jumping by under snapping yeah. the wrist or something like they, that. They so that's the idea. Effectively yeah. couple or buffer variation yeah. in one area with, with something else. So we start off with a lot of variability in our movement. No one's denying that. The idea is that traditional approaches, we want to reduce it, all of it. We want to get you to be able to say the same movement over and over through repetition of this practicing the same jump shot over and over. Whereas the new viewer is that we, we'd want to restructure the variability. We want to get that functional. We still need a different shot every time, but, um, we, we, so, but we wanted the good variability in there. Yeah. The well, so, so Bernstein talked about the idea of repetition without repetition, right? So mm-hmm. you're, you're yeah. no two shots are identical. Mm-hmm. in um uh w- one way I've, I've seen this described is like there's the, the the effect or the outcome and then there's the effectors mm-hmm. which get you there and so we yes. want the outcome to be stable and the effectors are are going to be variable but there's aspects of of what you're trying to achieve there's uh there's um there's aspects of the process that are also invariant from from trial to trial Right. For sure. Great shooters always follow through, right? They always, you always see that specific kind of posture with the hand after, Mm -hmm. after they complete a jump shot of any kind. Yes. So there's tons of variation. The legs may be kicking a different direction. The hips may have, uh, have, have swiveled slightly different based on moving right, moving left, driving forwards, falling backwards, where the defender is, but they pretty much always have that one, the the follow through, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. Yeah. And you, you tend to, one of the things you see is, you know, those things become more and more important and you see the, the more stringent, you know, the, the more difficult, the movement, like if you, if I let you move super slow, there's so many, you can move in lots of different ways, but if, if I make you throw a baseball as hard as you can, these kind of invariants, some of them have to be there. There's no way you can achieve, achieve. Yeah. It. Yeah. So, so within the, I'm thinking that, 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 uh, the, the constraints that approach in some sense is, is a way of seeking to stabilize the invariance that we need mm-hmm. and harvest as much positive variation as possible through the manipulation of task constraints. And generally I, I don't, I mean, I don't know it that well, but it seems to me that the general attitude is that when we can, when we can create physical constraints, um, or task constraints, um, that those, that the idea is that those have better, create better organization of the athlete or better help them find that positive variation, find those invariants. than when we attempt to use instructions specifically. Yeah. Overall, I find that in, in, you know, it's to kind of do rule-based constraints or instructions. Mm-hmm. So the most extreme obviously is it saying, no, you can't do, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> don't, uh, you know, don't bend your elbow. Um, those don't seem to work at all. You know, those explicit instructions about body position movement, you know, there's some great studies where they did motion tracking and showed people can't really implement those as friends, boss likes to say your body doesn't care what you have to say right or the coach has to say but if you create so what do you what you're trying to do going back to what we're talking about with constraints is you're trying to make the new some new movement pattern functional Mm -hmm. right and the old one not 
functional anymore. Like you're shooting over the barrier, shooting a low jump shot from your chest. You can't, it's not functional anymore. It smashes into the barrier. <laughs> Getting up and snapping your wrist is suddenly functional, right? So I, kind of that's the way I like to think about it too. It's making kind of making a new, the, particularly the old one, less functional and trying to push a person to a new, more functional one is the one way to think about it. So I want to look at a couple specifics, right? Um, okay. So I'm going to just use myself because I'm curious <laughs> how I can solve these problems. <laughs> but let's say, uh, so I, I'm, I'm working on, um, on changing the way that I do a front flip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in, um, so I, we're using a split legged takeoff in the front flip, as opposed to a two foot bilateral punch takeoff. Mm-hmm. So when you do that, one way to achieve rotation is to kick the back leg up. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is a very, uh, this is a very effective way to rotate quickly and get back to your feet. Mm-hmm. However, the application that I want for the front flip is going over things and going a long way. Mm-hmm. And so relying on that kind of rotation has this downside, which that is that it drives that as the leg, the back leg comes up, the chest goes down, mm-hmm. which limits the ability to project the body up into the air. So we want to get both those legs to be pushing into the ground and driving the body up into the air. Mm-hmm. So the first kind of classic way to address that would be to just tell the athlete, don't kick your back leg. Yeah. Now I can tell you in my case that I've told myself that lots of times. <laughs> it's not very effective. <laughs> yeah. There's lots of, there's lots of places where that shows up, where we can, we can tell an athlete what the error is, but it has mm-hmm. almost no, no <laughs> impact on their performance. Mm-hmm. So, so, so a const, a constraint. So the, the, cla- the, the best constraint that I found is just flipping over things. Mm-hmm. The yeah. problem with that constraint though, is that if the environment is, if the environment is, isn't sufficiently safe feeling mm-hmm. that fear comes in and then, then your behavior just gets squirrely and, and uncomfortable. It doesn't work. Right. Yeah. But like I needed a soft enough thing to flip over in an environment where I can land and feel safe on the other side. Yeah. So that's an a, a example of constraints. Um, I've tried to use analogies, right? So mm-hmm. like, um, Nick Winkleman's a friend of mine and I, I really love all his work on analogies when we use cues. So I could use the analogy of like, take off, like I'm taking off for a basketball dunk because you use a similar sort of, um, mm-hmm. you know, two foot takeoff and that is slightly helpful, but it's not as helpful as a constraint. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that really leads me to the next idea, which is you also talk about the idea of, of feeding the error and of differential mm-hmm. learning. So how would you, how would you think about those and what those offer and maybe how, how you might use it in a specific context? Yeah. Well, there's a couple of one. There's one that I thought of that, you know, that might, I don't know if this will work at all, but it reminds me of, so I'm a big fan of in baseball. I use a, a, a connection ball. Yeah. So I use, I place a ball and so I can imagine like yours, you, you have a ball, something you have to hold between your legs and you give you the task that you have to make that go forward Yeah. as you rotate. Like if you separate one leg, it'll fall, it's going to fall out and go backwards. Right. So you've created a, a task where 
the keeping your legs together is functional. I don't know if that exactly it's works. A one, I mean, it's pot. Yeah. You might be able to do that. Constraint. I actually thought about that as I was reading yeah. the, that section. Yeah. Of the, novel. Yeah. the problem is that you have to run into a front flip generally. Okay. <laughs> um, but I, was, yeah. I was thinking about yeah. the idea of putting uh, connecting a, an elastic band between the legs, mm -hmm. something that would give me enough freedom of motion, but that would give me a very strong sense of when that leg was coming up. So it'd yeah. feed the kinesthetic sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think the, the but the feeding of air one, yeah, is, is sometimes, you know, um, exaggerating the thing that you want to get rid of, uh, kind of paradoxically helps people more than trying to give them instruction at, in the opposite direction of how to do it, you know, because I think what you're trying to do, do is give the person, you're trying to give them information about the solution space. What, anyway, exaggerating is kind of giving you more. Um, we were talking, I was talking about this with someone on a boss about basketball, you know, deliberately trying to shoot a free throw um, so that it bounces off the back rim and goes out like that's going to teach you about how to actually sink three free throws, right? Because it's teaching mm -hmm. you about the relationship between your movement and the outcome, which is going to make you be able to adjust to being fatigued, <laughs> right? It's information, even though it's the wrong thing, um, yeah. if you can deliberately produce it. So, yeah, so that's what we kind of do, you know, and sometimes um, that yours is, your case is hard because the, the challenge is you want the functionality of the endpoint, right? Mm -hmm. Where you, you bought, like, unless you make a reason to be upright at the end, it's going to be, it's really hard. Like you say, yeah. um, I, I totally, I totally can picture why, like part of it, I think is your body's protective mechanism for kicking in. Right. Yeah. As soon as you start to flip, even though you said, don't kick that leg, your body's like, I want to get around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I don't land on this has worked really well yeah. for me. For yeah. Hundreds so, of thousands of reps. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to get that leg going. And so, yeah, I think that the, the, the key is, you know, making, you know, um, you know, the basketball example, one of, one of the things people have used is like occlusion yeah. glasses. So you can't see the hoop until your hand gets up there. Um, so making somehow the solution you want functional, I think is, is kind of key to it um, in, in keeping that there or else your body's kind of always going to, go around <laughs> ways. Yeah. So let's talk about the idea. So, so if we, if we accept the idea that there's no, there's no one ideal pattern, right. And in fact, like if we look at this axis of like, how much does the back leg kick up? So we, so let's say we have two, we have a binary state. There's a, there's a, there's a state where both feet basically push off the ground almost at exactly the same time. Right. Mm -hmm. So it can kind of be like, right. And then yep. we have one where like, it's like you have one leg. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Versus. Yeah. Um, if that's the case, well, so, so, but what you see actually is that some athletes, the best athletes actually can kind of play between those two degrees of freedom. Mm -hmm. Right. So they can, they can utilize a little bit of a leg kick and they can vary it based on the type of, of characteristic that they are. Now, my problem is that I've created so let, well, let, let's break down this terminology, but the way that I'm looking at this is that, that because of the way that I kind of started developing this skill and then having changed my perception of what I was trying to achieve with that skill, what I've done is I've created a deep attractor well around the leg kicking up, which is destabilizing the type of performance that I'm actually looking for. And it's not that the leg kicking up is inherently wrong. 
and that we maybe don't even want to be able to like, we maybe ideally we actually want to have access to all the degrees of freedom between the first action and the second action. Right. Yes. And then we can be adaptive to the type of circumstance. Right. But because I did so many reps like this, my body just keeps defaulting to all the way down that attractor. Well, Mm -hmm. yes. Um, you know, and this is very common, you, you, this behavior emerged out of the original constraints you put on yourself of what you're trying to achieve. And, and now it's, you will have a new set of constraints and yeah, I think, and and getting super terminology that the the athletes you're describing is kind of the state of meta stability. Sometimes Mm -hmm. to talk about where you can keep two, both solutions kind of active. Yeah. At the same time and bury them. So you don't have these wells, but yeah, I think that's a great description of what's going on. Um, this attractor idea. Yeah. So, so we have, you know, so we have essentially a kind of infinite set of, of potential motor solutions to things. And then within that, we're searching for something that stabilizes our performance. We ju- there may not be one ideal outcome, right. Or one ideal movement pattern, but there are, there are, optimums. Right. And the, and the problem is that we, that we can fall into these local optimums that aren't actually the most optimal. Right. So, so I, I, I'm in a local optimum that works really well for doing Webster front flips when I don't have to go over things. Yeah. But, but I'm having trouble getting out of that attractor, that well of in the, you know, the motor landscape and getting into this other one that I can see that I know is there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that stabilizes performance across a broader set of, of problems. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think a key point is that we we're I think, you know, we're just so efficient learners. <laughs> you mean me like yeah. we optimize relative to the constraints we've placed on us. We don't optimize relative to some external goal, right. That someone states, um, you know, we don't, we don't learn to hit golf shots on all different slopes and lies. Mm. If you practice on flat ground all the time, why would we, that's, yeah. that's not how you, that's not, um, we, you know, from every, uh, how our, our brain develops and visual system develops is based on the environment to place it in. Right. And, and not some overall general goal that you might have, you know? Yeah. So uh, I'm not, so I have, I have three kids. I've got a nine-year-old daughter, uh, a seven-year-old son and a, um, and a four-year-old. And obviously I want them all to be movers, but they all have a kind of different level of drive for it. My oldest daughter is very naturally strong and she likes to move, but it's not something she's passionate about. And she gets burned out easily and like, doesn't want to take lots of classes. Mm-hmm. My son is, you know, he, it's in, it's very difficult to burn off his physical energy. He just needs to be in sport all the time to develop it. And so it's like, great. His drives are very similar to mine. (laughs) Like I want him to be the expression of my ideal of what an athlete is, as long as it's interesting to him. Right. Like if Mm -hmm. he, if he decides that like, really, he, he wants to focus on being a a football player, then we'll maybe focus on that. Right. But Mm -hmm. right now it's like, if he, if he's interested in expressing the whole range of the physical stuff, I'm trying to feed him the best stuff. So he, he does parkour, he wrestles and he play, he's been playing football and rugby in the seasons for those things. Right. Mm-hmm. I had him trying to dance too, but I, I used to own a parkour gym. Right. And then that parkour, I left the parkour gym. I, I started this new program 
and that parkour gym no longer exists. And now I've moved to a small town. There's no parkour gym, but there's gymnastics gyms that teach parkour classes. Mm -hmm. So I go in and I take him to these classes and it's frustrating for me (laughs) 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 for a couple of reasons. One is because they have this very top down, you know, linear model of coaching where they're trying to instruct things. And very often the things that the, the things that they're trying to instruct are, are contrary to the constraints that they have in that environment. Mm-hmm. So um, a classic problem is that they, they don't have, they don't have walls or rails, right? So they're trying to teach vaulting skills that we use over walls or rails. Mm-hmm. And the kind of default thing is to use a spotting block, which is a relatively wide, relatively soft surface. Mm-hmm. Okay. So very different. Yeah. So it's very different constraint. So the, the kids, mm-hmm. if you just let them go over it, will naturally a lot of times default to using their knees on top of the surface. Mm-hmm. So we have to give them a verbal constraint. You can't use your knees. Mm-hmm. Right? If you if you do this on a on a on a on a concrete wall, you won't use your knees. <laughs> right? Just yeah. Maybe small children will, but you get to a certain body size and it's just no longer an <laughs> not going to happen. Yeah. But the other problem is that it's too wide. The kids. So, so they want to teach them a skill where they do what's called a step wall. You put one hand down, you put your foot down and then you swing your leg to the middle, but it's, it's actually too wide for the the kids to do that. But they are like, this is a fundamental to parkour. You have to learn it in this environment. This is the tool that we have. (laughs) So now they're asking the kids to do something that's contrary to being adaptive. Um, Mm. and so the constraint is, is completely against it. And so, Oh man, you got to like we got to, we got to <laughs> manipulate the environment. Like you can on balance teams. You can't teach this movement on this. Yeah. Other thing that I see is that they're, they're on spring floors mostly. Mm-hmm. And so the optimal movement solution very often is to jump up and down and get a strong penetration of the ground, relying on the, Getting that. the mm-hmm. rebound of the ground to create force. But this is completely not the way that we actually produce <laughs> force against concrete. Yeah. Yeah. And, and these, beca- these can become attractor wells for movement that can become h- quite hard to let go of. Like one of the things we see is very hard for athletes who've done thousands of, of a forward somersaults straight over their head to learn to do a shoulder roll. Mm-hmm. Like it's the, the two, the two skills are close enough to each other that the athlete will fall down that attractor well back to the skill that they're used to. And it's a very hard time getting over and creating a Mm -hmm. new skill. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I think that's a good, that's a great example of, you know, one of the really dangerous things about this fundamental idea is this negative, negative, that's negative transfer, right? You're teaching you a solution. It's not actually going to work at all (laughs) in a different environment. Having you, there's no inherent problem with letting kids do that if they varied it. Right. Yeah. Um, learning think, to movement solve when you can spring. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's fine, <laughs> but you can't learn. That's the one way to do it. And yeah. Know, yeah. Yeah. So let's, I, I want to talk about differential learning. So I was okay. thinking about this, um, in relationship, I'll, I will give another skill as an example. So I'm, I'm trying to learn a skill called a, a corkscrew. So it's a, it's a single leg backflip with a full twist. So you swing one leg and jump off the other leg, flip backwards and twist 360 degrees. So it's a 360 degree rotation in two planes, Mm -hmm. but generally in order to do it optimally, you're, you're not actually rotating directly backwards. You're rotating on an angle. Mm -hmm. So because I started as a gymnast, I'm 
I'm, I again fall into this attractor well of wanting to do everything in a directly sagittal plane, right? I don't want to mo- use this diagonal mm-hmm. plane. It's hard for me. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking about how could, could I use a differential learning model to disrupt that? So I was thinking about things like, you know, asking myself to flip while like holding one arm up and one arm down or holding a, um, a ball in my hands as I was doing this. Mm-hmm. So I could start to disrupt some of these tendencies and, and make my body view the skill from an, another perspective. So does that make sense to you? And can you, can mm-hmm. you just describe why differential learning works and, and, and kind of what that is? Yeah, differential learning. I guess you can you can think about it on on two two levels. So differential learning is is manipulating the constraints or the variability in in the practice conditions. But the way that I contrast it with the constraint set approach is it's not purposeful trying to get a here's a constraint that's taking away this and making this functional. It's more kind of random variation, like you're describing, holding a ball, doing differently. Um, with kind of two purposes. One is to get you to learn the solution space, like getting yep. you to learn the relationship between body position and how you move. And I guess the, the idea is almost <clears throat> like an interpolation. Like if, a, if, I, if you learn how to, if you practice doing this really extreme move, then you understand how to get the, the between of what you're normally doing and, and the diagonal position, right? So it's getting people to learn about the, the movement space um, and, and it's kind of pulling out. There's also this more kind of um, hardcore <laughs> explanation of this stochastic resonance idea that you can pull out the signal by varying around it. Um, but to me, it's like, it's almost like you're, you're I, I like the first one, but you're learning kind of what works and not on a conscious level, but how to produce these different movements. And I think it also kind of your body develops these attractors because it know it kind of learns what components need to be there in your movement to generate the one you want um, by, by experiencing some really extreme <laughs> conditions. I think, I think you're learning the solution space, which helps you get the one you want eventually. That's, that's the idea. Um, so it's very, it's more random variation getting you to, to deliberately produce these very, unorthodox movements that are unlike, right? So another difference, like in, in the constraint set approach, like the basketball example, we want to try to get you to move like you will in the end, mm-hmm. like shooting over that barrier. Whereas differential learning, we're really trying to get you to move in ways that are not totally unlike that we, what we want in the end. Um, we're hoping that you'll get that eventually by doing these weird, weirder movements. Yeah. Yeah. So I, like to, to use the same skill. So if we're, if we're looking at a, a swing leg backflip, um, one constraint that I've used. So again, we can kind of think about, so a a coach should say, could say, um, you know, that's an error to swing your leg directly overhead. Mm -hmm. So you're swinging your leg directly overhead. So now swing it over the side, right? So that would be, you know, swing it at a 45 degree angle. Now, like the research you pointed out is that, that something like a 45 degree angle is something that your, your nervous system has a really hard time. Mm-hmm. You know, it just doesn't really, doesn't really attune to that. Um, so a constraint that I've used is to have a, um, a target that I'm going to kick, mm-hmm. right. That's moved to about 45 degrees off of where my head is going to be when I initiate the kick. So that's a constraint. Now, if I was going to, um, you know, say, do 
a, a twisting backflip off both feet. And I was going to do, um, you know, do that, like grabbing a ball and trying to flip with the ball in my hand and, you know, or like trying to, to do it with my hands at my waist or my hands over my head or doing these type of things. That'd be more like a differential learning. So that, so one of the ideas that, that I like, I was, I was just, um, I was picking up and looking at, um, Franz Bosch strength training, um, and coordination and integrative approach uh, this morning as well. As I was thinking about this conversation, he's talking about the idea of like attuning the athlete to higher order, um, movement control, right. Mm -hmm. That's another way that we can think about this, that if I can control it in all these different ways, that that will help me recognize the control factors that will get me better ability to, um, to, to maintain that control. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. And, and one of the things I like a practical, I like combining them actually. Yeah. So in your example, giving the target to hit like a yeah. constraint, but at the same time, very starting with different stances, starting with different, right. So, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. so that I found to be really help because some people I find you give them a constraint and they, they can't figure it out. <laughs> they yeah. can't figure out how to move to satisfy your new constraint. By, but by giving them a little exploration of the space, like I do things like different bat weights in mm -hmm. my thing, it's not really up any for any specific purpose other than getting you to vary around kind yeah. of this constraint. So, and I find that helps a lot. So, so classically with a, with a, with a corkscrew, there's a, the, the description of the ideal technique is to do a J step. So you start in one direction, you take one step that takes you maybe 25 degrees back to the other direction. And then the next step has you in a 180 from your original direction of travel. That's called the J step. And that helps, it helps open the back leg up so that you get a bigger, longer kick. So I, I like to do two steps into that, right? Some athletes like to do three steps. So one, so one, so a couple of differential learning things that we can do is try three steps or try two steps or even one step into it, or, um, or intentionally don't make the J all the way, right? Stop it at less than 180 degrees or from a standing start, do it from a narrower stance or a wider stance, wider gap between the back legs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. And I think that's way, if you asked, um, you know, Wolfgang Schulhorn, who's that kind of yeah. mentor different, I think that's the way he likes to think of it, varying it around the solution you want, the J, like yeah. instead of just completely random variation, mm -hmm. subtle variation. I think that's the way he likes to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about going in also and like trying to intentionally not complete a rotation over the top, but like, like spin 360 with my foot, not going past the height of my hips to try and try to try to find that those in-between phases, right? You talked about this idea that when we're, when we're first learning a rhythm, it's very easy to be at zero phase and 180 phase, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have two things moving, right, they're either moving exactly at the same time or precisely the opposite time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're trying to find the, the space between them. So if I know how to rotate at horizontal doing a B kick and, uh, uh, and, and, uh, vertical, what I'm trying to find is actually that 90. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But my, my body keeps going to the phase that it's comfortable with. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's getting so I could in try that. to attune mm -hmm. and create this new motor, this new, this new attractor mm -hmm. by playing somewhere with both of them possibly. Yes. 
you're yeah, getting different it. constraints or different starting. So putting you kind of a different spot in the landscape, um, you know, to start with, I think is, is yeah. kind of a way to think about it too. So I wanted to dig in a little bit more. So we've talked about variation. We've talked about constraints. We've talked about the, uh, the dynamic, uh, or uh, differential learning and, what degrees of freedom, variability, all these things. So one of the areas where I get a little bit hung up with the ecological approach is the kind of rejection of information processing at all, or, mm-hmm. or, or mental representations, mm-hmm. right? I've heard people say that like, there's these two ways to look at motor control and it has to be either one or the other. Mm-hmm. That's me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And I, you know, I was reading Bosch and I was like realizing, I don't, I'm not sure that Bosch is, I think it seems to me that he's a little bit more, um, a little bit more agnostic about that. For sure. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've talked to him about it a bunch of times. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and my sense is that like there, like in general models are not perfect descriptions of reality. We know that. Mm-hmm. Right. So we have a model of information processing and we have a model of this, this uh, ecological dynamics and maybe neither is a perfect description of reality. And there's certain ways that I think you've made a really, really strong case that, that there are aspects of motor control that are not, explained well within the information processing, mm-hmm. but I've seen times where it almost feels like it reminds me a little bit of behaviorism where they're like, we just don't mm-hmm. think about what's going on in that. <laughs> yeah. It's like, there's no, there's no mental representations because we can't study them. Mm-hmm. And, and that um, doesn't like, sorry, go ahead. I don't. So I was thinking about, uh, um, you know, I, you probably know David Farouk. Um, he's big picture soccer on Twitter. He's talking about the idea that, mm-hmm manipulation is probably he, he tweeted that manipulation is probably the wrong way to think about or deception is the wrong way to think about what's happening in sport. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like you're, you're, mo- you're acting and then you see a new affordance open up and then you, and you, and then you do that. And that's what it looks like when someone jukes somebody out, mm-hmm. but that's not my personal experience of, of playing basketball or especially martial arts. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, I feel like I'm definitely using some kind of mental representation because let's say that, um, uh, you know, a very specific example, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sparring with somebody and I, and I pump out the jab. And when I hit them with the jab, they try to counter with an overhand, right? Mm-hmm. So this happens one, two, three, four times. And each time I see that big overhand, right, come, I'm able to pull and move behind it, but then I'm not able to, I don't have the time to hit them with a check hook. Mm-hmm. So my check hook is missing or I'm just not even pulling it because I can see they're too far away before, you know, by the time I've cleared the overhand, right. The, the affordance of the, of the check hook is no longer there for me. Right. Mm-hmm. So now I, I recognize what's happening. Right. So I've, I've, I've thought about it. I have a cognitive representation of what's happening. At least that's what it seems like to me. Mm-hmm. And I think to myself, okay, I'm going to preload this pattern. I'm going to, I'm going to pump out a jab. I'm going to sell it, but I'm not going to try to land it on it. It's a feint. Mm-hmm. And there is a check hook that is preloaded. That's coming off of that. And as soon as I see that, 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 um, that overhand, right. whistling by my face, mm-hmm. the check hook is already happening. Mm-hmm. And so it's this cognitive recognition of what's happening. And this idea of preloading that allows me to predict what's going to happen next. And then I'm able to hit them with the check hook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, wow, this is how to start. So, so yeah, I think, you know, I would, 
So what I'd start with is, you know, can an ecological approach, one of the things that we really try to do, and it's really kind of pushed the field forward is how far can we get explaining behavior without appealing to these representations, mm-hmm. right? <clears throat> so that's where we kind of get the doggedness that frustrates the heck out of people, yeah. right? So we would try to, you know, that kind of situation, people would try to, I haven't thought through it all in, the, in, in detail, but about there's ideas of keeping multiple affordances available, uh, you know, nested affordances. So people, uh, I'm not sure why prediction, predicting what's going to happen in the future is needed in, in that example. So, so, but, but that's why, why we do that. And that's why um, the, the, the fundamental idea is that to me, the reason they're separate things is going back to that indirect versus direct perception, whether you need to process prediction is something you do when you don't have all the information, right? I predict the outcome of election beforehand because I don't know how to people vote. Mm -hmm. The fundamental idea of, of, of Gibson is that we have the information. It's that the, the direct, if I pick up the specifying information from my opponent, I know what they're going to do um, without predicting it, I guess. It, I, and I can control my actions. That's, yeah. And I don't know that. I know that's probably not very satisfying. But no, no, no. I mean, the I, idea. Yeah. I think that happens sometimes, yeah. right? Yeah. Like my felt experience as an athlete is so sometimes that overhand right comes and mm-hmm. I attune to the information as it's happening and I see yeah. the affordance for the check hook and I'm able to land it. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I have to recognize that a pattern has been playing out mm-hmm. and adjust my behavior preemptively, plan the next set of behavior before it happens. And what it seems like to me is that if I can, if I can predict that, that, that my behavior will result in a specific, um, a specific response from the athlete, then, and, and I pre-plan my response to that, that behavior will occur faster in that circumstance than if I rely on waiting for the window to open. I have mm-hmm. to predict that the window is going to open in order to optimally take advantage of it. Not always, but sometimes. Yeah. And again, without, you know, all thinking all this through, I think, you know, and the ecological approach would kind of explain that in the nested affordances idea that you're doing one thing to get to another. Mm-hmm. Um, I think is the idea that would, would people would um, uh, use for that kind of thing. And also, you know, there's a couple of things, you know, I, I have a <laughs> inherent distrust for people's recollections and reflect post hoc recollections of what they do. To control their actions, which maybe is not fair, but I do think there's definite phenomenology to to this that an ecological approach we need to do more, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know, I, for example, I think when you, I think like the situation you describe when you have you're keeping these multiple options alive and you have a plan. One of the things I think phenomenology phenomenological people experience is a slowing down of time. It feels like you have more time. Yeah. Um, as an athlete, when you do that. So I think there, I, there's aspects to that. And I, I agree. There's just some, you know, I just, uh, I'm kind of determined to try to explain it <laughs> than, than that way. Um, because for me, the, the problem I have with representations is they don't really explain. They just displace the problem for me. They don't really explain how you move. Like you say, 
I plan the movement. What does that mean? Now are you initiating a motor program um, with all the parameters specified for that punch? What goes back to the problem? You know, I'm setting an intention. Yeah. So that's, right? yeah. So, so the, you know, I was thinking about the idea of like attention, intention, and calibration, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I'm, I'm training myself essentially in that situation, right? I'm, I'm, I, I've been exposed to the same information multiple times. Mm -hmm. So now I know that if I pay attention to this thing and feed out this information, that's the interesting thing is the feeding out the information. That's what I feel like is, is not well represented, but, but, but I've set an intention. I will, I will uh, faint the jab. Mm -hmm. I will, expect and respond to the, um, the overhand right with a check hook. I mean, sometimes you can see that, that, you know, you'll see it. If you, if we play deep attention to like MMA, like athletes have, have patterns that they're choosing to do mm -hmm. based off of, of like those type of reads. And sometimes they're wrong and they mm -hmm. get clocked because the, the athlete in front of them didn't behave as predicted, right? They've consistently yeah. given a specific response to a read and then they change it when you try to respond to that read. And that's where a lot of knockouts happen. Yeah. Right. But there, there is something about predictive processing happening there. It feels like to me, and, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm not sure that the way that I've seen it described feels intuitively right within the ecological perspective. It seems like there has to be something about prediction. Like um, uh, David Farouk gave the, the example of, of Messi, right? Juking somebody out and going the opposite direction. And in that example, I think it's totally plausible that he didn't have an intention to fake right and go left or to fake le left and go right. But when you know, Nikola Jokic looks away the defense with his eyes and then throws the ball the opposite way, there's an intentional manipulation. He, he is predicting mm -hmm. the behavior of the other agents in the arena, um, the other players on the court. And he knows that if he, if he pretends, he predicts that if he pretends to throw a pass in one direction, that an affordance will arrive in the opposite direction that then he can take advantage of. And he, you know, he has to kind of, it feels, it seems to me that he has to decide that he's throwing the ball that way and looking that way before he does it. Um, so I, yeah, I think, you know, the, the fundamental there's, I think part of Gibson's idea also is, you know, we don't proceed, just perceive to act, we act to perceive, yeah. right? So fainting is acting to perceive, right? It's yeah, cr for sure. creating, creating an affordance by your, my movement. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess it's what we're talking about predicting, I guess, is, is the, the sticking point, you know? So, um, having knowledge of what, you know, my actions will realize, I think, um, is not the kind of same prediction. Maybe I'm, I'm thinking like predictive control, like, mm -hmm. so you can have an, I think you can have an intention to, um, do two movements in a row, like, I'm going to look and then my attention is to look right, then pass left. Yeah. Um, but you control that on online, like, like oh, yeah. type of control. I think, I, I guess, I think that's where the 
But you also see, and, and I understand this because kind of the well, another thing we do in the ecological approach is we kind of push everything into attention, <laughs> intention yeah. without really explaining it. And I know we need a lot of work there. I think, yeah, for sure. So I understand that. Yeah. Okay. We'll call well, that was uh, a good. That, yeah. 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 So let me. So I was thinking last night about the way that I teach. Right. So. I think that I teach in a pretty constraint led style of approach, but not completely. And it evolved very organically. It's kind of like, it's sort of, I've backfilled in the ecological dynamics understanding to an approach that had already evolved. And I don't know if I described this to you on the podcast, but basically I was teaching gymnastics, which is super linear top down. And then I started doing parkour and then we took parkour into a gym and started teaching in the gym. And what I was good at based on my gymnastics background was this atomization of skills, breaking skills down into specific pieces that could then be built up. Mm-hmm. I took my teaching into nature and I, re- and all of a sudden my prediction for what was necessary to move a student from a, from being in a certain place in their skill development to the next place was no longer accurate. And a lot of drills and cues that I expected to have to use didn't happen because the athlete self-organized the pattern that I was looking for. And we found that a lot of the movement skills that we're looking for do self-organize, right? Mm-hmm. Given the right constraints. So looking at the, one of the examples is a step fault. So a step fault is basically walking or running over the top of an object while using a hand to support you. And you have to be able to thread your leg in between the, the contralateral hand and foot. So we used to teach this and you still see a lot of of teaching organizations do this. They'll have everyone get down on the ground. So completely remove the context, get into this position and move the leg back and forth. And they think, okay, you have to do this before you, this is a fundamental that you have to teach before you arrive on the Mm -hmm. obstacle. Mm -hmm. It's kind of silly. It's actually harder to do the movement on the ground than over an object. Um, but if you, if you take somebody for a walk in the woods and they have to step over a, a branch of a specific height, they will just do this pattern. It does, it's mm-hmm. like, it's, it's totally automatic, right? It just organizes. Mm-hmm. However, a lot of times what you'll see is that the athletes will come down on both feet on the other side and they'll come down rotated about, uh, you know, 90 degrees from the direction of travel. And then they'll have to reset themselves. Mm-hmm. So when I instruct people, I give them a task constraint, go over this object, go over this object, go over this object, or go over, under, over, something like that. And automatically, most of the basic vaulting patterns that we use in parkour will start to develop if I give them the right constraints. Mm-hmm. However, there are certain things that, that, that they, there are certain errors that are consistently made, like the one that I've just talked about. Right. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I can use a constraint. So if I, if I give them two steps to then take a jump, they'll start figuring it out, right? Mm-hmm. Because it, it's obvious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What happens a lot is people set up one vault, right? You go over the vault and then you're going to go around and go back into line. And this actually feeds the error okay. because they're just going to rotate to whichever mm-hmm. side. And then that takes them back to where they're going, right? Yeah. So there's, yeah. there's constraint manipulations, but sometimes I will show them physically right? I'll say, okay, mm-hmm. here, I want you to step all the way down to the ground. So that's technical instruction, step all the way down to the ground. And, mm-hmm. and to me, that is an invariant of high level parkour performance. They always do that in a step fall. Right. Um, 
another example is the the Kong vault. So a Kong vault, we I can actually show you a video of this. Um, are you pressed for time? Um, I have to about fifteen more 15 minutes, minutes or so. Okay, yeah. cool. So I'll show you this. Um, so share screen. All right. So um, so this is a Kong vault. And I wanted to show you this because it's an interesting illustration of these kind of attractor wells that don't necessarily work well long-term, but that people can get stuck in. So this is Toby Seeger. He's one of the best in the world at this particular skill. So watch the way that his legs set up. He has this, he has this, mm -hmm. this is a similar takeoff to the one that I was talking about with the front flip. Two feet on the ground, staggered. Mm -hmm. He's swinging his arms through. Boom. Blaze comes through. Okay. So now we're going to watch uh, a, a novice athlete attempt the same thing. So I'm going to see if I can skip forward a second. Oh, no. And see how he's coming with his two feet together. Mm -hmm. so, he's so I've seen lots of athletes who've gotten stuck at that level, right? Mm -hmm. They don't self-organize to the split foot technique without instruction. So now he's instructing him in it. And I want you to see how it's different, right? Mm -hmm. um, so here's, here's how he's pushing off with both legs. And now notice that when he does the same thing, he's lifted his leg up and his knees coming through. Mm -hmm. So this, the way that I think about this is that you have the, that your body, when it's standing on one leg and locomoting naturally swings the leg through instead of pressing down and pushing with both feet. So we have to mm -hmm. kind of inform the athlete to do that. So to yeah. me, this is a fundamental, or like you can think of it as an invariant of high level parkour performance, though it's not completely invariant. There are environments where like, if you're, if you're taking off of a narrow surface, you have to use this two foot takeoff position, but mm -hmm. the second pattern, the pattern of driving the knee through never works. It's never a yeah. good pattern, right? Yeah. So that, that is a good example of something I talked about. Sorry to interrupt the, yeah, the, the, you, the, you're the optimizing to the specific constraints. So the versus the optimizing to some, some solution the coach has in their head. Yeah. Right. There's no, like the functionality of the, what the expert is doing is not really being forced on the novice there. Like they can get the, what the coach is telling, I want you to land like this. They can do that by the one leg takeoff. Right. You know what I mean? They're so making it you, over. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're in the, going back to they're doing, they're in the local minimum, right? You're, mm -hmm. They're satisfying the specific constraints, whereas you want them to satisfy a global constraint that really hasn't been opposed on them yet. Yeah. And this activity, you know, that's the kind of the challenge of it. Yeah. Uh, what happens you know, with that knee coming yeah. through thing is that it, is that the athletes are much more error prone in clipping their foot or knee on. Yes. Thing. So not only do they have, uh, not only do they have lower power, right? So, mm -hmm. so the constraint of going further over something or going higher over something is what's going to necessitate this other technique. Yeah. But they might not be able to get to that other technique if they've done this too many times. For sure. Easily. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they might, clip their knee, clip their foot. So as an instructor, even if they successfully do it in that circumstance, I might want to move them out of that local minimum really quickly mm -hmm. because the error rate and the potential for injury is high. Yes. I think that's a good, that's a good example. Yeah. Ideally you would want to make the pattern you want functional by changing the constraints, 
but that could be dangerous in, in your situation, right? Yeah. You might have to learn to learn that by really injuring yourself. That that doesn't work. Yeah. And so yeah, I totally understand that. So you want to. That's why you know I think as a coach, you know, you, that doesn't preclude explicit instruction. Is a constraint. Oh, let's put you here. <laughs> um, it's usually h- harder to get it to work, um, but I think I think it can be beneficial. Sometimes you're right. That's all you have. You really have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So the degree, like how wide the feet are and the takeoff, for instance, or how far the hips dip down. Like these are things that I would think of as fluctuators that are going to be dependent on, on the, 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 the movement coming in, right. All that context condition variability and the athletes, individual action capabilities and physical structure. But the fact that you're going to split your legs and take off with both legs in a slightly staggered, but not, not mm, independent approach. That's something that's invariant across all high-level parkour performance. And one thing I I was actually talking to my buddy, Todd Hargrove, who interviewed you recently, we're talking about fundamentals versus invariance. Like, couldn't you almost see them as the same thing? Like that part of the lesson is that we need to, we need to not identify variance as invariance, right? Yeah. We need Mm -hmm. to narrow that down, but still as coaches, we we do need to have models for what are optimal performance and, 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 and we need to use all the tools that are disposable, the disposal in some sense to move people there. We may, we have reasons to want to use the constraints as much as possible. Like um, let's talk about in a second about reinvestment, but, but does that make sense to you the way that I'm describing that? Yeah. I think the difference, the key, you know, fundamentals are things we think beforehand that mm-hmm. are key to successful performance, whereas invariants are things that emerge because <laughs> uh, they're functional. Uh, yeah. I think that would be I mean, the difference. I know that, that might be really a difference because I mean, it's essentially like, like what I'm saying is that it's emerged within the practice of parkour, that mm-hmm. it's fundamental to learn to do a, a Kong ball with a split leg takeoff. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that in most sports, what a lot of the things that are maybe not all, because there's this aesthetic and there's this sort of style element that gets stuck. Um, mm-hmm. but a lot of what's described as a fundamental is these things that have emerged over time is like all the best performers do this. And yes. when you do this performance is more stable. And so yeah. we want to get the athletes to adopt those solutions basically as early as possible. Yeah. And I, I think the difference from, yes. So I, I, I definitely, I think a good coach can identify those and make those the, so it's not the idea. Sometimes the idea of a fundamental is more of a building block, a linear building block, which I don't think is what we mean by the invariance. Like mm-hmm. um, yeah. it's not a linear, like, so you can't, I don't think you can teach invariance by pulling them out and breaking them apart because they depend on the information and the, you know what I mean? So, yeah. So I, I definitely, I think I can see the, yeah. the, the yeah. parallel for sure. Okay. Yeah. I still think there might be uh there, are, there are examples of like, you, you can imagine examples of building blocks as well. Right. Um, like one of the things that I like in, 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 in the friends Bosch thing is the idea that, that variable training is really powerful because it helps you identify movement control, movement strategies that are stable across many different mm-hmm. problem spaces. Yes. Right. Um, 
but that in- indicates that there are those things, right? Mm-hmm. And then like that you can build off of them, that you want to have this, this thing. So like, um, you know, obviously you can't do a muscle up until you can do a pull up. So a, a pull up is fundamental to a muscle up in some sense. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Or it's a, a tipping it's action a dip- mm-hmm. is, is it's, critical to certain types of movement skills. Yeah. I guess the, 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 yes, it has a functionality that both kind of builds on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if you have time to answer this question, but I would, I would just feel really bad if I didn't get to this. Okay. Because it's so, it's so, it's so right up my alley. What is, what is the idea of donor sports? And like, why would parkour be a donor sport to something like soccer? Yeah, that that's a, it, it's kind of, you know, I kind of have a superficial answer, but we're having a deep discussion. So it's, it's a pretty new idea. I think, you know, it almost, um, it, you know, I kind of agree with it and I kind of have some issues with it because it's almost getting into the idea of general perceptual motor abilities. Mm-hmm. So one idea that we've uh, rejected, you know, in the ecological approach is like, there's these general abilities, like eye-hand coordination that you can plug into all these different sports. The idea is no, the skill is specific to the environment. So donor sport has some of that quality to it, like that you learn these general abilities of how to use space. But I guess the difference between what people are thinking about with donor sports is the idea that there's the ability to do things like use space and pick up gaps and to pick up affordances it, it helps you when you get in a training environment like soccer, where you also have to use space and, and gaps yeah. and things. So parkour can help, you know, I, I think, so I think there's multiple different things there. I think parkour also, um, I think I, I'm a big believer in, I, although I don't like this term, I keep using it, body awareness. Like mm-hmm. so many of the kind of popular sports we play, we don't learn anything about, our body position. We don't learn to, I, you know, get really specific. We don't learn to tune into proprioceptive and kinesthetic senses. Yeah. We were so visually dominant. So when a coach says you, you're not bending your hips enough, you're bending your knees. And you're like, I don't know what my hips are doing. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think it can benefit in that way. So yeah, the idea that it donates some things it doesn't transfer, like you're suddenly going to show up and be a good soccer player because you play parkour, but it's going to help you maybe get there faster. Once you start practicing soccer, that's the idea. So that that's, that's, that's my experience. Right. And it's kind of the idea behind what EMP is, right? Like involvement play essentially is like an attempt to create a better general physical preparation system, right? Mm -hmm. Like what are the fundamental movement capacities that we should all have that will then be a base for anything that you try to do. And how do we create a more adaptive movement problem solver that can then go achieve any, you know, solve any problem. And what I've noticed is, so it's, cl- it's clear that there is such a thing as positive transfer and a such thing as negative transfer, right? Mm-hmm. So skill can't be a hundred percent specific. No. So yeah. there are, that in- indicates to me that there are some level of, of general abilities, right? So there's an aspect of hand-eye coordination, say, that is specific to anything that you do, right? If you, if you play catch in, in with a baseball, there's going to be something missing when you move over to Frisbee. Yes. Right? So there's but, a capacity that you built up. I think there, that's going to help you learn faster than some. Yeah, for sure. So, so you talked about the idea of, um, you talked about the example of Albert Pujols versus Jenny Finch, right? <laughs> yes. Albert Pujols, best, you know, hitter on the planet 
got three chances to try to get a hit off of Jenny Finch, who's a fast pitch softball player. Mm-hmm. And he didn't, he didn't touch it. Right. Yeah. Now I think that's informative because it tells you that there's not a complete transfer. There's something missing, but I think if you stop there, that doesn't necessarily tell you that there's, there's nothing like, I think that baseball is obviously a good donor sport to softball. It's just not a completely perfect transfer. Yeah. I think that if you gave him a hundred trials, Pujols is going to, is going to hit Finch way earlier than I will. For sure. Yeah, for sure. He has, but how would he hit Finch by going back and practicing baseball? <laughs> right? No, but he'd be I mean, go by practicing softball. <laughs> the the fact that he practiced baseball would have would eventually have transferred. It just doesn't have immediate transfer. And this is what yeah, I've experienced. It, like, so I I, you know, I did parkour for years and mm-hmm. then I went back to uh I started doing capoeira and I went back to jujitsu, right? Mm-hmm. So I was doing capoeira, and what I noticed was that if we, if we learned a new movement skill, right? So, so, you know, we're doing Majalu Ais, which is a kick turning into a sort of front handspring. Like it's a diagonal front handspring out of a kick. My first trial looks no better than anybody else's in class or very little better. Like just because I'm stronger and more flexible, maybe it's a little bit better, but like, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm confused and uncoordinated like everybody else on trial one, but by trial 10, I'm consistently better than everybody else in class. And it's because of the, the awareness of my body, the mental models that I have that I got from parkour mm-hmm. or to give an example from, from jujitsu, we were working on a sweep that involved, um, sp- spinning horizontally on your back and then rotating up on your back. So it's basically rotation, in two different planes, and then you wrap your legs around the other guy and drop him and you end up in a heel hook position. And what I realized was that almost everybody in class couldn't differentiate rotating their body horizontally from rotating their body vertically. And they had no ability to time that. So they couldn't go, okay, I'm rotating horizontally for this long. And then I'm going into the horizontal, the two movements bled into each other and people just got confused, Mm -hmm. but I was able to to not only pick it up much faster, I was able to cognitively recognize what was happening and describe it. And then I could even help the students. I could have, you know, said, Hey, we're all going to just work on this rotation. And then we're going to work on this rotation. And then we're going to work on those rotations coming together. Mm-hmm. Right. So they lacked that body awareness and that basic locomotor awareness, which I had. And I attribute that to parkour because I hadn't done jujitsu at that point in nine years. Yeah. No, that's why, why I think parkour is such and things that are such a good donor sport is because they, they don't teach you. You're not learning a specific movement pattern. Like yeah. being a football quarterback is not a good donor sport for being a baseball pitcher, right? Yeah. Because you're learning a specific way to throw a projectile mm. that's different than the new way. Whereas parkour is learning how to movement problem solve. It's learning how the movement of my body produces this outcome. So, which is, I think, more useful general <laughs> like it is gen- yeah. general you're right it's basically a it's a, it's a generalist movement problem solving activity around yeah. locomotion which is something that occurs in almost every sport there's always locomotor demands right and i think there's other things like you know even with like something like skateboarding i think there's other higher level things like psychological things like you're not afraid to fall yeah. and, and hit things and make mistakes where yeah. other not other sports we don't 
get that build up that error tolerance except yeah, yeah, that sure. I learn by falling and and, and failing. Yeah. I think in parkour and skateboarding and stuff we learn that way. There's a lot of yeah, fear modulation as well, right? Mm. Like just so falling is obviously part of that, but also just in general exposure to something that's scary and then learning to go through the cognitive process that helps you overcome fear, I feel like has a potentially high transfer between activities. But not a perfect transfer. I actually think I think it's a really it's something that I, that I rag on a lot is this idea that like, you see all these parkour guys who become super courageous physically, but then are still socially very uh, uh-huh. anxious. Yeah. So they still can't approach a girl. All right. Like, well, you went out there, you went over there to, to become courageous. You <laughs> yeah. better, you better figure out how to transfer it. I still think you can transfer it. Like if you learned how to be courageous over there, you can learn how to be courageous over here, but, but you have to still engage the process. You have to yeah, go It's a totally the process. different problem to solve. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I know I've used up a good half hour more of your time than you scheduled. <laughs> oh, no I really enjoy this conversation. There's yeah, a lot more too. that I would love to to pick your brain about. So maybe we can uh, do another one someday. For um, sure. Yeah. I, like I said, you, I alluded to, I've been on a bit of a book tour and this has yeah. been one of the deeper <laughs> into the weeds ones. So I really yeah. enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, so awesome. it's just kind of it's a very high level concept. So yeah, thanks. Ray. Yeah. Thank you, Rob. And uh, I look forward to, uh, for our next chat, uh, to our next chat. Okay, great. Have a good day. Oh, before we go, your book, okay. How We oh, Learn okay. to Move. Yeah. yeah. Everybody go pick that up. Your website is perceptionaction.com. It is, yeah. And you have the Perception Action Podcast, which has got almost, what, 300 episodes on it? I think it's almost 400, I think. Okay, almost 70 something getting there. Yeah. Um, I cannot <laughs> recommend it enough. Honestly, like the reason I was able to have this conversation at this depth is because I've gone and consumed those episodes. They're usually about 20 minutes. They break down the literature. If you're, you know, if you want to go read about this stuff and read the literature, it's, it's going to be challenging. Um, but I think you do an incredible job of, of, of helping people understand it and then helping people understand how they could apply it and start getting those lessons through their actual practice. So just cannot recommend it enough. Go check out Rob's podcast. Great. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) Okay. Have a good day. (laughs) Bye-bye. You too. Hey, you've reached the end of another Evolve Move Play podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, if you want to be involved in the conversation, please consider joining us in our new membership subscription so you can get access to question and answers with our live speakers once a month, question and answers with me once a month, and a dedicated forum to discuss everything going on in the podcast, as well as a general discussion of movement on our general movement forums. If you're interested in that, make sure to check out the link below, get signed up, and join a part of our membership community. If you can't join our membership community right now, it's still always helpful if you can like, share, and subscribe, and even hit that bell and get notifications for upcoming Evolve Move Play podcasts. But audios for now, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.